Welcome again to King's Cross. If it's your first time or we haven't met, I'm Taylor and I'm one of the pastors here. And at King's Cross, every week we open up the Bible and typically work our way through books of the Bible. So for the last several months, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, It's a small little New Testament letter. We're in chapter 4 today in verse 19. If you were with us last week, we spent our time thinking about the character of Paul's ministry. Paul, if you remember, used this really emotional language to talk about his parental care and concern for the Galatians. He uses maternal language of, of labor and giving birth, and, and he tells them, I wish, you could, I wish you could hear me in person so that you could hear the tone of my voice as I'm pleading with you. And the three things we saw were that the character of his ministry was that he told them the truth, even if it upset them. He was zealous, not for his own good, but for their good, and he suffered for them. He was willing to suffer for their good. And in all three of these things, we saw one, that he sets an example for all ministers of the gospel, that church leaders ought to be concerned with the truth, ought to be zealous for the good of their people, and ought to be willing to suffer for them. But more importantly than setting an example, he points us to Christ, who in an ultimate sense, not only tells us the truth, but is himself the truth, who is zealous for our good and who suffered for us ultimately and redemptively on the cross. Last week, we saw the character of Paul's ministry. This week, we're going to see the aim of his ministry. What was the goal? He says in verse 19, I am in labor for you. Toward what end? I've been, had the privilege of being in a labor and delivery room twice. Three times, I guess, but I don't remember the first one. Uh, Twice with my wife, and uh, there's a very clear goal. Right? You want the baby to be born healthy, and you want the mom to stay healthy. You're bringing a new life into the world. What is the goal of Paul's labor? He says that he's laboring not for their birth, but for the birth or the formation of Christ in them. That Christ would be formed in them, by which he means that they would be so conformed to the image of Christ that their lives would be full of Christ, that they would live the way that Christ would live if he were them. Um, he, he talks about this elsewhere in Romans 8, 28 and 29. He says that God predestined us for what? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And Paul said a couple chapters ago, Galatians 2, 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His goal for the Galatians is that they would be able to say that with him, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. We're gonna consider what this looks like today, first by way of contrast. So Paul wants us to be full of Christ. The opposite of that is, of course, being full of ourselves, by which I I don't mean what we might say, you know, he's so full of himself, but really I just mean a a sort of self-directed, self-governed life, a life lived in the power of self. So we're going to contrast that, and then we're going to see what it looks like to be full of Christ and how we can actually become full of Christ. So Galatians 4, 19, turn there with me. I'll read God's word for us this morning. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. This is God's word. There's two ways we're going to see this morning to be full of yourself. And the first is what we might call your religion. Um, an example of this, earlier this week I was at a coffee shop, I, was, I brought some books with me trying to do some studying and some reading, and I started to overhear a conversation, and something that you should know about me, if we ever are getting coffee or ever getting lunch together, if there is a conversation within earshot that is remotely theological or philosophical or moral or ethical in nature, 
I am not going to be able to pay attention to what you're saying to me. And I can't help it, and I know it's bad. Like, I sat there for 30 minutes and read about a half a page of a book, and I'm trying to focus, but I can't, I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but I can't help but be sucked into these conversations. And so, very close to me, there was a table, two women, uh, who were having a religious conversation. They both came from a religious background of a, a traditional religion, not Christianity. Uh, and they were talking about, one of them has two children, I learned, uh, a daughter and a son who's in middle school. And last summer, she, I promise I wasn't trying to listen to them, but last summer she said she sent her son to a summer camp for a week. And unbeknownst to her, it was a Christian camp. And she's not a Christian. Uh, and she was talking about how since he's been back, she's continued to learn about different things that happened at the camp that she didn't care for. And one of them was on the last night of the camp, everybody was sitting around a fire. And if you spent a lot of weeks at Christian camps, you may know where this is going. The camp counselors encouraged them to write down on a piece of paper something they had done that week that Jesus is not proud of and throw it into the fire as a form of repentance, I guess. Now, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the notion of writing down something that Jesus isn't proud of and throwing it into a fire. I don't think that's a very helpful way to disciple young people. Uh, but what I found particularly interesting was the way she just continued to describe this. And she said, you know, write something down that Jesus isn't proud of. Okay, you know, maybe, maybe write something down that you're not proud of and throw it into the fire. And what I found so fascinating was that she, it wasn't that she did not want her son to have any moral authority. It was that she wanted him to be his own moral authority. It, she, she wanted him not to submit to, at least to Jesus, but really in, in general to anything outside of himself, but she wanted him to be his own moral authority. If there was something that he wasn't proud of, sure, but he didn't need to be concerned with what some religious figure may not be proud of. What this mother was describing uh, is simply what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the ethics of authenticity. Uh, Charles Taylor says that we live in the age of authenticity, which is really defined by the fact that there are only two sins in the West in our day. One of them is to not be true to yourself. One of them is, is, is to not be your own moral authority. So you look into your heart, whatever you find there, you, you almost have this duty to express it to the world and to live as your own authority. And the second sin in the age of authenticity is, of course, uh, to not affirm somebody else in their own self-expression, Right? It's interesting. Um, there's actually, we're calling this irreligion, but there's also a kind of irreligious religion. So you, you may remember that I said these two women came from a religious tradition, and they were talking about that religious tradition, but it was so totally sort of secularized that it was actually not even about God, but it was about self. That like the, the moral mandate of this religious tradition could be you need to be your own authority. So there's a kind of, of irreligious religion where, you know, you, in fact, you may have been in churches like this, right? Where there's a lot of talk about love, there's a lot of talk about grace, there's a lot of talk about being kind, but there, we would never talk about sin, we would never talk about holiness, we would never talk about God's sovereignty. Um, insofar as God exists in this kind of religious system, he is really there simply to endorse and affirm everything that you already say and think and do. Because, of course, God is love, and the definition of love in this sense is mere affirmation. And so for God to impose any rules or demands or limits would be oppressive, and it would be harsh, and it would be unjust. The other way to be full of yourself seems, on the surface, to be the opposite. We have irreligion, but we also have religion. 
Uh, legalism is what I mean. We all, we all know what legalism is, right? Why? Because every public pop culture portrayal of Christianity is a portrayal of legalism. Dating back to like the Scarlet Letter, which you, you may have read in middle school or high school, right? This young woman becomes pregnant. The father of her child is not her husband. Uh, it's somebody else. And the way that the town and the church treats her is just horrible. She's brandished with a, a, a bright red A for adulteress. And the, the things that people say about her are so unloving and unjust. And of course, not only are they legalistic, but they're hypocritical. And the height of hypocrisy is that it turns out the pastor is the father of the child. Um, <laughs> but this, this, is, this is present not just in sort of high literature like The Scarlet Letter, right? Think of every millennial's favorite TV show, The Office. Who is the only religious character? It's Angela, right? And you know that her religion is a farce. Like she, you know, she, she has a set of rules that she holds other people to, but her religion is nothing like a sort of warm and loving relationship with God. Now, ironically... It was Dwight Schrute, or rather Rain Wilson, who shared some thoughts on this legalistic caricature in pop culture that went viral earlier this year. He was commenting on HBO's The Last of Us, and he said, I do think there's an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible-reading preacher on a show who is actually loving and kind? So he's pointing out the stereotype, but sadly, as you know, the stereotype to some degree is there for a reason. Is it unfair? Is it over the top? Sure. But, but I would guess that for every one of you who has been in a church context that was all grace and all love and no justice, no morality, there's probably four or five of you who have been in a church that was all about behavior, that was all about morality, where you had to live up to a certain standard or otherwise people were going to look down on you and judge you. Now, again, <clears throat> ironically, uh, it's not just fundamentalists who are guilty of this kind of religious legalism, right? There's, there are, for my money, the most legalistic and judgmental place to be in our world today is in sort of the Western secular public square, where we all know that there's an orthodoxy, there's a set of right beliefs, and if you transgress those right beliefs, or you know, the set of right practices, if you transgress those right practices, what happens? You're, you're virtually excommunicated from the public square, right? You're canceled. You, can't, you might lose your job. You might lose your friends. And so just as there's a kind of irreligious religion, there's a kind of religious irreligion. That, like, it, it goes both ways. To sum up, irreligion says you are your own authority and you should express your true self and live however you want. Religion, on the other hand, says that there is some authoritative moral code that you have to abide by in order to earn divine or social acceptance. And when we live as irreligious people, <clears throat> the first example that I gave, we're simply living the self-life sort of nakedly, openly, without trying to hide it, right? It's seen as a moral good to, to let yourself be your own moral authority. When we live as religious people, we're just living the self-life in disguise, Right? We're, we're saying I have to live up to a certain standard, whether it's a divine standard or a social standard, but I have to do it in my own power. I have to be good enough. I have to be in the right, and I can look down on other people who aren't. These are just two different ways of being full of yourself, and they contrast starkly with being full of Christ. What does it look like to have, as Paul said, Christ formed in you? There's two elements. <clears throat> the first is 
conformity of actions. We want our actions to look like the actions of Jesus. Just very simply, this reminded me this morning of WWJD bracelets, which 20 years ago everybody used to wear, right? Just simply asking, what would Jesus do in this situation? Our actions need to look like the actions of Jesus. And we can see this in his life in a couple facets. One, his devotion to his Father. Jesus was devoted to the worship of God the Father. And we see this in certain explicit actions. Jesus prayed. Sometimes he prayed all night. Jesus fasted, in at least one case, for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus studied scripture. Uh, You remember the story of when Jesus was 12 years old and his family went up to Jerusalem for their pilgrimage and they forgot about him and they turned around and they found him in the synagogue talking about the scriptures with the religious and theological authorities. And he said, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And he's talking about his father's word. Jesus went to church, or rather to synagogue. Uh, Luke 4.16 tells a story about Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it says he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his practice. In other words, every Saturday, he was there with the community of God's people. Jesus was devoted to the worship of his father. He was also devoted to the good of his neighbors. Jesus not only taught the golden rule, he lived by it. He didn't just say to love your neighbor as yourself. He loved his neighbor as himself. He fed the hungry. He cared for the poor. He included the outcasts. That's so much a part of Jesus's ministry, right? Going to people who are on the edges, who are excluded, and bringing them in. And in the end, he died for them. For those who were filled with shame and those who were guilt-ridden, he actually was excluded so that they could be included. We're called to imitate this. Our actions in our life need to look like the actions of Jesus. That. Sometimes I I think we get so into the weeds of things that we can forget the simplicity of just trying to imitate Jesus in our lives. But there's a second part to being conformed to him. It's not just conformity of actions, but conformity of affections. Why and how was Jesus able to be so devoted to the worship of his father and the good of his neighbor? It was because of the right proper ordering of his affections. If our affections are not conformed to the affections of Jesus, then the attempt to to try to imitate his actions is actually just a return to legalism. And we won't actually have the power to do it anyway. It'll never last. Do you know what I mean when I talk about affections? Not, Not just simply like you know, liking somebody or loving somebody, but the, really the fundamental orientation of your heart, your desires, your loves, what you long for, where you look for rest and for life and for joy, for the, the deep happiness that you were created for. This is, the, again, the sort of fundamental orientation and ordering of your heart. And Jesus told us how to order our affections. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The proper ordering of our affections is that we would love God first and foremost and love everything else for God's sake in light of our love for him. In fact, that is love. St. Augustine wrote a great deal about the proper ordering of your loves. And he said that the, the sort of natural state of the human heart is that we are the chief among our own affections. Like that I love myself, I'm, my fundamental ordering of my heart is toward my own good, 
and, and I love myself more than anything else. And he said, when you are sort of sitting on the throne of your own life, you don't actually love anyone or anything. You use people to try to prop up your own life. You use things, but you don't actually love anybody because you're, you're using them for your own purposes. But when that changes and when God is now sitting on the throne of your heart, when you love him first and foremost, you love everything else in light of him. And for his sake, you begin to love others. You begin to be able to serve them because you don't need, when your heart is already filled with everything it needs from Christ, you don't need to, to use other people for your purposes. You're already satisfied in Christ. That's what love, properly speaking, is. A true conformity to Jesus is a conformity not just of actions, but of affections. I, I read this week, or rather listened to a helpful illustration of this. I've been re-listening to That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. It's the third uh, book in his Space Trilogy series, which you may have heard me say before, is wonderful but very weird. And so if you're not a C.S. Lewis fan, I don't necessarily recommend jumping into That Hideous Strength. But the, the book is about, uh, <clears throat> among other things, this, the main character, his name's Mark, and he, from his childhood, he just has this longing to be in what Lewis calls the inner ring. Like, he wants to be in the circle where the stuff happens, right? He wants to be around the important people. And he doesn't particularly have strong convictions. His convictions are whatever the inner ring's convictions are. And so he, he gets his opportunity in this book to be in the inner ring in this sort of academic uh, society that, that partners with this sort of governmental political thing. But before he knows it, he finds himself in the company of quite literally the worst men in the world. They're trying to take over the world and do all these horrible things. He has a counterpart, another professor, named uh, Dr. Dimble. Dr. Dimble's much older. He's a good guy, right? He's on the right side. He's, he's a Christian. And uh, it, they run into each other about two-thirds of the way through the book. And I just, I found this so interesting and actually convicting that <clears throat> in, their, in their conversation, Mark thinks that Dimble is hating him. And he says, I know you've never liked me. And, and Lewis says that this comment convicted Dimble because in his heart, he knew that he hadn't really liked him. And he was trying to overcome that. And as the conversation went on, it said that Mark's presence in reality was acting on Dimble as a summons to rigid self-control. Dimble was simply trying very hard not to hate, not to despise, above all, not to enjoy hating and despising. Now, maybe this may seem elementary to all of you all, but it was convicting to me how seldom in the midst of actual conversations with actual people and the real actions of my daily life, I am trying very hard to live the way that Christ wants me to live. I just get on autopilot and I, I'm not actually thinking about my affections. Are my affections rightly ordered and are my actions representing that? I don't even stop and think about it, I just live. But to be full of Christ, our affections and our actions need to be conformed to his. How does this happen? Like, how do, we, how do we actually get there? I'm going to give you three steps, and I'll tell you in advance, the first one is much longer than the other two. First, we must understand the gospel. Uh, this has been Paul's entire point in Galatians 1 through 3, right? He's been clarifying what is the good news, what is the gospel. In fact, in all of his letters, he, you know, the first half or so is gospel doctrine, and then he transitions to here's how you ought to live in light of what you believe. And, and the gospel, according to Galatians, very plain, very simply, is that you and I cannot justify ourselves before God. We cannot earn his approval. We cannot earn his affirmation. We cannot be good enough to earn his acceptance. No amount of good works that we could do 
would, would earn the divine validation that we all want. But the good news is that that affirmation and that validation is given to us freely. It's given to us not because of anything that we have done, but because God loved us, he sent his son to live the life that we failed to live and die the death that we deserve to die. We deserve, Galatians says, God's curse, and Jesus deserves God's blessing, but Jesus went to the cross and took the curse so that we could receive God's blessing, and we receive this grace, Paul says, through faith. You don't work hard enough to receive God's grace. You receive it through faith. And even the faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is a gift of God. Like we, we can't even muster up the faith on our own. But what happens when the grace is received? It changes us. It changes us. It, it, we, we begin to want to obey God. We begin to, when we stop seeing his law as an opportunity for us to justify ourselves before him, we start to see it as his gracious gift that shows us how to live. And we start to love his law. And we start to love obedience to God. Now, this is essential because there are, there are loads of religious people who get a little bit irreligious and think that they've become Christians. And there are loads of irreligious people who get a little bit religious and think that they have become Christians. There are loads of legalists around the world who hear the concept of grace and think, oh, God's not that concerned with how I live so I can lighten up, and they think they become Christians. And there are loads of people who have made a mess of their lives and start to be attracted to the morality and the ethics of the Bible and say, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna get my life together, and they think that they've become Christians. But adding a dose of irreligion to your legalism or a dose of legalism to your irreligion does not make you a Christian. And it's possible that that may be you, that you grew up in a really you know, fundamentalist religious background and you, you've loosened up a little bit. Or you're just here because you're trying to live better. You're trying to do right by God and square things up with him. That's not what it means to be a Christian. How can you know if that's you? When you think of God, just like really ponder deep in your heart when you think of him, do you think of a generous and gracious and loving, super abundant God who is just overflowing with joy and life and happiness and who wants to bless you unimaginably? Or do you think of God as a sort of tight-fisted miser who is holding out on you? Do you think he's trying to keep good things from you? Do you think that his rules, and of course, whatever else we could say about the Christian God, we know that he does have rules. Do you think that his rules are just there to spoil your fun? Or do you think that they're for your good? The fruits of religion on the one hand and irreligion on the other hand share the same poisoned root, which is a failure to believe that God is good and that he is for me. Whether I'm a religious person or an irreligious person, it all roots back to this idea that God is not good or he is not for me. There's a wonderful book called The Whole Christ written by Sinclair Ferguson, and it's all about this concept. And I'm, I want to read this quote to you. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth reading in full. He says, The root of legalism is almost as old as Eden. In Eden, the serpent persuaded Eve and Adam that God had a narrow and restrictive spirit. After all, the serpent whispered, isn't it true that God placed you in this garden full of delights and now has denied all of them to you? 
This was an attack on God's character, for the serpent's question carried a deeply sinister innuendo. What kind of God would deny you pleasure and joy if he really loved you? He allows you nothing and yet demands that you obey him. And now all Eve saw was a negative command. One small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the forbidden tree blocking her vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could, see, she could not see the forest for the tree. Now her eyes were on God as a negative lawgiver and judge. In both mind and affections, God's law was now divorced from God's gracious person. Now she thought God wanted nothing for her. What was injected into Eve's mind and affections during the conversation with the serpent was a deep-seated suspicion of God that was further twisted into rebellion against him. The root of her antinomianism, which is just a big theological word that means irreligion, was actually the legalism that was darkening her understanding, dulling her senses, and destroying her affection for her heavenly father. Listen to this end of the quote. He says, Now, like a pouting child of the most generous father, she acted as though she wanted to say, You never give me anything. You insist on me earning everything I'm ever going to have. Do you, do you see that? How the same posture, the same attitude is at the root of both religion and irreligion. Religion says, God is tight-fistedly holding out on me, and so I have to be really, really, really good in order to get him to open up his hand just for a second so that I can have something. And irreligion says, God is tight-fistedly holding out on me, and I'm done. I'm done trying to work to earn his favor. I'm done trying to work to earn his blessings. I'm gonna go live now however I want to live. It's just... I mean, this is so perfectly portrayed in the story of the prodigal son. You all know this parable that Jesus told. The younger brother goes to his dad, says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. You're worth more to me dead than alive. The father scandalously obliges, and the son goes, and what? He's irreligious. He spends it all on reckless living. And he comes back, and he says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And before he can finish his sentence, the dad is hugging him and kissing him and throwing, you know, he's basically giving him his inheritance all over again. And he throws this huge party for him, invites the whole town, and there's one person who doesn't come in, and who is it? It's his older brother, the older brother who was out in the field still working. And his dad goes to him and says, won't you come in to the party? Your brother was lost, and now he's found. And the older brother says, I've been here slaving away for you my whole life, and you never threw a party for me. Both the younger brother and the older brother wanted their father's stuff, but they didn't want their father. They thought he was holding out on them, and they didn't realize that he was abundantly loving and gracious and wanted to simply bless both of them. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It's something else entirely, and it starts fundamentally with your view of God. God is not holding out on you. He wants to bless you abundantly, and he's proven it with his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Okay, again, the next two points are much shorter. So first, you have to understand the gospel. Second, you have to believe it. Do you, do you believe that? Do you, do you, again, belief is more than just mental assent to something. Have you taken hold of and grasped hold of Jesus, the gift of God the Father, his grace? Are you receiving that through faith? Are you putting your weight on Jesus? Are you trusting in him and not trusting in yourself? You have to understand the gospel. You have to believe it. And third, you have to be motivated by the gospel. 
Now, most of us here, I think, basically understand the gospel and basically believe the gospel, but this third point, gospel motivation, is actually the key to living with the experience of being full of Christ. This is what you actually need if you're going to have not only the actions but the affections of Christ. You have to, to learn to be motivated by the gospel. It is possible to understand the gospel, to have it doctrinally correct, and even to believe it, and yet to still live like a legalist. You can know the truth about God mentally, and yet it hasn't gotten down in your heart, and in your heart you're still like Eve, doubting God's goodness. Um, and, and that's key, because your heart-level view of God determines what motivates you. So for example, for the last year or so, I've been slowly, and I would say largely unsuccessfully, trying to read the Iliad. I never read that in school. I'm sure I was supposed to, but I didn't. And I've been trying to read it, uh, and I'm not making great progress. But one thing I have noticed is that there's all these moments in, in the story, of course, where the people, the mortals, are doing sacrifices to the gods, right? And why do they do it? They've got a big battle coming up. They know they're in big trouble, and so they know that the gods are easily manipulated, and so if they can do the right sacrifice and perform the right ceremony, they can get a particular god on their side so that they can go win the battle. Their view of God motivated their actions, and in this case, they had the proper theology that the uh, deities in their day were selfish, childish, immature, easily manipulated gods, and so they perform sacrifices to try to get what they needed. Now, none of us have that theology explicitly. But do we implicitly? Do we live like if we just perform the right religious sacrifices, we could get God on our side and get him to bless us? Isn't this what it means to be motivated? When you're trying to change, when you're trying to grow as a Christian, are you primarily motivated by guilt and shame and fear? What's the internal script for you? Are you telling yourself, I should be better than this? This is embarrassing. I should be beyond this by now. I've got to do better. That's legalism. That's not gospel motivation. That's guilt motivation. And you can understand the gospel and still live like that. I know because I do. And then what happens if we're not careful is over time, as we continue to live that way, we make the turn that Eve made. And eventually we get tired of being motivated by guilt and shame and trying to earn God's favor. And so we just say, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to live the way I want to live now. But if we can learn to be motivated by the gospel, if you can learn, as Tim Keller put it, to motivate yourself with your joys, what are the joys of the Christian life? God loves you. The, the infinite and eternal and all-powerful and all-present God of the universe notices you. And he sees you and he looks at you with pleasure. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. And he gives you the full, the amazing thing about an infinite God is that he can give his attention to everybody and to every single individual as if they were the only person that he was giving his attention to. God notices you and loves you and cares for you. And because you couldn't make your way to him, he provided the way to him through his son. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's washed you completely clean. He does not hold your past against you. And your present has infinite meaning and significance and purpose because of him. And your future is unbelievably bright because of him. That's what it means to be motivated by the gospel. And that's what actually, as we live that way over time, that's what changes our affections. God's no longer an angry miser who we have to try to work to please, but he's a loving, generous, 
abundant Father who we're just responding to in joy and in pleasure. The difference, the difference in religion and irreligion is that the religious person works to obey God. But the difference in religion and the gospel is that the religious person obeys God because he has to. And the gospel-motivated person obeys God because he gets to, because he wants to. The religious person's actions may be, for a while, conformed to the actions of Jesus, but the gospel-motivated person's affections are conformed to the image of Jesus. That is Paul's goal for the Galatians, and it's the Spirit's goal for each and every one of us. Let's pray.